everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Brian Bowling here with me as always is Brandon Odo. Hey, hey. And we have a special guest with us today. Uh, Dennis Kim, he is an assistant, uh, sorry, associate professor of surgery at UCLA and the medical director of the surgical ICU there at Harbor UCLA Medical Center. He is a avid educator and hosts the popular podcast Trauma ICU Rounds, which if you've not listened, you should check it out. This fall, however, he's going to be leaving sunny South- Southern California and headed north to his native Canada, where he's going to be taking on the role of the trauma medical director in what I think is a very beautiful place, Victoria on Vancouver Island. Dennis, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Brian. Good to see you too, Brandon. Oh, it's it's a pleasure. Um, we I think we both enjoy your podcast. Now, if anyone out there is confused who has been around for a little while, th- there this is not to be confused with, I think it was called Surgical ICU Rounds, which was Jeff Guy's podcast on sort of similar topics that is not been very active recently. I actually, uh, prior to launching Trauma ICU Rounds, I actually reached out to Jeff Guy, Dr. Guy, um, because I couldn't really come up with a better name. And it was so (laughs) close to his brand. And he, you know, immediately responded and was like, you know what, best of luck. This sounds great. It's needed and had no problems whatsoever. So I thought that was pretty cool. No trademark infringement. (laughs) Right, exactly. All right. You know, I, I was just thinking, and I, th- I think you are the first surgeon we have had on the show. So I think it's going to be interesting today to look at kind of how what you do overlaps with what we do. And, you know, it, of course, in many cases these days, trauma surgeons are also intensivists, so very much overlaps. Um, and right. yet, you know, we're often kind of working in different areas, even on the same patients. So I think what I really want to give some thought to today is this sort of philosophical question of when a patient needs to go to the operating room. Mm. And we're going to give you actually a couple cases, but maybe just to s- start out, and this is going to uh, uh, challenge your, your philosophical uh, uh, muscles, but in like 60 seconds, what would you say is the general uh, approach of when a patient needs surgery in a, a trauma context? Yeah, so in a trauma context, I think... Um, We adhere to the sort of uh, saying that uh, if a patient is hypotensive or unstable following injury, the number one, two, and three causes are bleeding, bleeding, and bleeding. And so anytime a trauma patient comes in, I think that's one of the first things we're looking for, the hemodynamically unstable patient or someone who manifests obvious clinical signs of shock, which again can be kind of subtle if you don't know what you're looking for. And so we call that the golden ticket. Patient comes in, they're hypotensive. Um, They're either going to be bleeding into their chest, abdomen, pelvis extremities, or onto the street. And so if that is the case, then the safest place to be is in the OR and not to spend too much time in the ER kind of playing around. And in fact, in some centers, uh, like where I did my fellowship at UCSD, they have a direct to OR resuscitation protocol. And so for those patients, whether it's based on the shock index or other established criteria, um, we'll actually bypass the ER altogether and go directly from the ambulance bay to the operating room where they'll perform the initial assessment and evaluation. 
So I think following injury, uh, hypotension or hemodynamic instability is critical. And then when it comes to patients with, let's say, an emergency general surgery problem, let's say a perforated diverticulitis with like a septic shock, well, in those particular cases, I think the key there is if it's a surgical disease process, it usually requires surgical steel to fix. And so do all your usual things in terms of the early antibiotics and fluid resuscitation and all those things that we're used to doing. And if they're not responding or they're, you know, not getting better, then usually the OR is the best place to be. Now, of course, a lot of this, I imagine, is a little easier to say than to apply in some patients. So that's what we'll, we'll look at today. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right. So you are covering the trauma service and you get a pre-notification from EMS that they're bringing a patient in. Um, it's, it's a John Doe, but they'd say a t- maybe 20 to 25-year-old male. And this story was a little strange, but what they've put together and uh, communicate to you is that it sounds like he was in a, a gunfight, or at least was shot. I suppose you have to shoot back to be a gunfight. But <laughs> he uh, he gets in his car to escape the scene, and he drives off, and a few blocks later crashes into a tree. This was all witnessed. So the ambulance uh, finds him there in the driver's seat, um, unresponsive, with an obvious gunshot wound to his epigastrium, pale, uh, thready and rapid pulses. He's breathing and he's just sitting in a a deep pool of blood. So they're bringing him in in a a BLS ambulance. They're just about three minutes away. Um, What is the sort of pre-brief you give your team? What what is your approach going to be to this person when he arrives in, in just a few minutes? Yeah, so great question, Brandon. And I think in those instances, which to be honest are the vast majority of cases where you get that heads up, I think it's so critical to have a quick huddle with all the members of the trauma resuscitation team. And so at our hospital, we were sort of trained and indoctrinated into team steps. And so we oftentimes will use a number of different tools and communication strategies to really make sure that we're all on the same page. We want to have a shared mental model as we're prepared for what may be a truly unstable patient who's actually dying in front of our eyes. And so we'll always do a quick little round of introductions, first names, roles, and then assign certain people to, for example, get the two units of whole blood someone else to get the MTP while our pharmacist draws up the TXA. So it's really just a quick little huddle. Sometimes we'll we'll perform what's called an S-bar. So what's the situation, background, assessment, and recommendations. But that's usually done more in the context of, let's say, a, a rapid response where you kind of arrive to the scene of this rapid response call and you're getting a quick structured handoff. So yeah, absolutely, we want to get prepared for this patient. And this one's a little bit more complicated. It's a a patient who sustained a penetrating trauma who then got involved in an MVC. So you've got both mechanisms going on. And so in addition to the epigastric gunshot wound, and that may have gone any number of places through any number of organs, we've also got to rule out, for example, a TBI or pelvic fracture and all the other things that might accompany uh, high-velocity MVC. Okay. So he rolls in, um, 
while you're saying some of this. And he more or less looks as billed. Um, he is unresponsive. Uh, his abdomen does have this obvious penetrating injury and is otherwise rigid. Um, his heart rate is 140. They're not able to obtain a blood pressure with a non-invasive cuff. Someone tries to take one manually, and his systolic seems like it's about maybe 60 over palp. Um, he's, he's satting 91% on a non-rebreather. There's no lines. It was just a BLS unit, and he's lying there in front of you. What are your first steps? So per ATLS, we would proceed with our primary survey, ABCDE, so airway with C-spine precaution. I think given the mechanism and the fact that the patient's really not evaluable, we'd probably collar this particular patient at this point. I think one of the things here is he's unresponsive, and so assuming that his GCS is less than 8, I think oftentimes the first knee-jerk reaction would be to snorkel the patient, but I would actually caution against that in this particular scenario. I think if the patient has a patent airway, is maintaining SATs, uh, and we can provide assisted ventilation, I would continue to do that while I rule out, for example, uh, tension pneumothorax and and identify other sources of potential hemorrhage, which in this case, it sounds like it's going to be their abdomen. But bullets don't necessarily fly in straight lines, and we still don't know if there's a second hole. So this bullet could be in the chest, the missile could be in the pelvis. We have no idea at this point. I think many of us are now moving more towards a CAB approach to trauma patients and bleeding patients. So we want to address the circulation first, and that usually means identify the source of bleeding and then stop the bleeding whichever way you can. Now, in the case of an extremity, that would be placing a tourniquet, but here we have a non-compressible torso hemorrhage. And so when it comes to current modern options in terms of temporizing, that could involve something like a balloon up in the aorta or reboa. But you've already said that the patient's rigid, and earlier we were talking about what are some of the absolute indications to go to the OR. This is the patient. They're in shock. They've been shot and they have a rigid abdomen. So those are your golden tickets. This person's going to go up to the OR. But before we go, we'll definitely want to get some x-rays or plain films of the chest and abdomen to get a sense of the missile trajectory. And then we said that the patient has a palpable pulse or at least has a, a low systolic in the 60s. If the patient is, you know, arousable and you can palpate a pulse, and the patient has penetrating torsal trauma, this is not the sort of patient I would begin aggressively resuscitating because we don't want to elevate that mean arterial pressure too much. By doing so, we're going to pop clot. And we already know from the original study by Maddox and all that in these particular patients, you want to hold off on active resuscitation until you get hemorrhage control. And that's up in the operating room. So regardless of what the blood pressure is, even if it were more easily measurable, if the patient is, let's say, has a pulse that you could feel, you would consider that good enough? Yeah, yeah. And again, just to, just to reiterate, this is for penetrating torso trauma. Now, in this patient, it's a little bit more complicated because they might have a traumatic brain injury. And so we'll want to do a quick assessment of the GCS and look at the pupils to rule out any potential intracranial hemorrhage because if that is the case or they're at risk, we actually don't want to perform permissive hypotension because we know the two things that kill patients with TBI are hypotension and hypoxia. 
So just to make that clear for, for the audience, again, permissive hypotension is solely for patients with penetrating torso trauma. In this particular case, it's a little bit more complicated because there is a potential for blunt injury and TBI as well. Well, so that leaves you with a dilemma here because you said you really want to just go to the operating room, but there are some unanswered questions. Um, you said you might kick, take some plain x-rays of the chest and abdomen. What are you looking for on those that might shed some light on what you're doing? Yeah, for the penetrating torso trauma, again, especially with the epigastrium, um, you want to get a sense as to trajectory. Did, did the mess all end up in the chest or did it go other places? And you also want to marry that to an EFAST to look for lung sliding even before you shoot your x-ray, to look at the pericardial sac to rule out any evidence of an effusion or a cardiac tamponade. And that should be your, your minimal uh, imaging findings. Now, again, despite the theoretical risk for a TBI, if the patient is rigid and hypotensive, you're simply not going to bother going to the CT scanner to, to look at the head, or at least that's not advisable. This patient needs to be up in the operating room. Okay. So you do a quick EFAST. Um, you see lung sliding bilaterally, and you don't see uh, any significant effusion. There's maybe a, a very small one on the left. Um, but you do see um, extensive free fluid in the abdomen, which looks complex and, and clotted. Um, the heart looks hyperdynamic, and you, you don't see any effusion there either. Um, is that, is that all you would really do in the, in the ER? At this point, you would want to get him out of there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we'll always, obviously, this day, in this day and age, we're going to send off a, a COVID swab. Uh, we'll get a type in screen. We'll activate the MTP. We'll hang some TXA, and we'll just give a two-gram IV bolus right off the bat. Activate MTP and get that patient up to the operating room because they need an X-lap. Okay. So for... Those in the audience who are non-surgeons, which I think is most of them, um, I think the OR can be a little bit of a black box sometimes. So you, you notify the OR this patient is coming. You head down there. Um, you walk, you, you scrub perhaps, you walk into this room and just maybe spend, I don't know, seven, eight minutes kind of walking us through what is actually going to happen in this room. Yeah, Absolutely. So again, I think um, depending on how your hospital or trauma center is set up, it, it's going to differ. Uh, certainly in terms of some of the key points, irrespective of your practice, hopefully the OR is relatively close geographically to the emergency room. For us, it's a one floor up above the, the trauma bays. And so we literally take, you know, uh, a quick elevator right up. And as soon as the OR doors open to the left, we have our OR front desk. We would have already had uh, notified the team up front that we were coming so that they could prepare the right trays. You know, if we're going to do a thoracotomy, for example, that's going to be a different tray with a completely different set of equipment than if we were doing a laparotomy or a peripheral vascular repair for someone with an extremity arterial or venous injury. So those things are communicated even before we get upstairs because we don't want to be in the OR with a sick and dying patient and then not have the necessary instruments, tools, and personnel to be able to perform our hemorrhage control techniques and our actual needed procedures. So in this case, you're asking them to prepare for a laparotomy? 
Absolutely. Yeah. They'll ask us, what are you going to do? And we'll say X lap. If we think, you know, that we need to get into the patient's chest, then we just open up our trauma tray, which usually has a combination of all of the above instruments. And uh, one thing to bear in mind, especially in this day and age, is we do have a a lot of uh, patients who are coming in who may be morbidly obese and or very large. And in those particular cases, we'll want to call for what's called a portly tray where they have extra long instruments so that we can get to difficult to access places like the retroperitoneum and injured vessels back there. And um, anesthesia will normally come to all of our top tier activations. And so once we make that decision to, to go up to the operating room, anesthesia would have already called their colleagues to get things set up to establish an airway. This patient still doesn't have IV access, so they'll need to prepare for all those things as well. Once we roll into the operating room, that's usually where the sort of interaction between the ER nurses uh, and other healthcare providers kind of ends. They give a little bit of a handoff, hand off the flow sheet, let us know what sort of IV access they have, what meds have been given, what's been ordered and hasn't been given, and then communicate that to the nursing team, circulator, scrub techs, as well as anesthesia. And there are a number of different personnel that are going to participate uh, in the care of this patient uh, while they're being induced and during the time of the operation. So it really requires a lot of um, orchestrated activity and guidance, but it's the trauma surgeon that usually leads uh, all the sort of activities revolving around the resuscitation of the patient. Okay. So um, you enter the room, anesthesia uh, has the patient intubated, they've established a a cortis in his right IJ, um, and they're inducing some light anesthesia. Uh, You have your uh, laparotomy tray set up, you have a couple of assistants of varying degrees of training. Um, You're going to start with perhaps a midline abdominal incision? Yeah. So one of the things we didn't talk about is the actual preparation, exposure, and approach to trauma patients. And the rule of thumb generally is that we always want to prep the patient from their chin to their knees. And the whole idea there is if we needed a vascular conduit, let's say in the setting of an injured blood vessel, then we'll want to have access to bilateral groins so that we can actually fish out the saphenous vein on either side, depending on which side looks better or larger. And, you know, with these patients, if we haven't already done a complete exam on them and log rolled them, usually the opportunity presents itself when we're moving the patient from the transport bed or their ER bed gurney onto the actual OR table. And in anyone with a penetrating trauma, I'd always want to take a close look uh, at the perineum, scrotum, as well as the uh, bilateral axilla, because these hair-bearing areas tend to hide wounds. So every now and then you'll get fooled and miss a hole if you're not paying attention. And once the patient is prepped and draped at that point, yeah, we would then proceed uh, with surgery. Again, this is going to be done without consent. So this is in in an emergent setting, but we still want to do a quick timeout just to make sure that everyone's on the same page from the standpoint of administration of prophylactic antibiotics, which all patients should be receiving, and that's going to decrease the risk for SSIs postoperatively. And then to make sure that we have all the right personnel, equipment, and that we're doing the right procedure, particularly regarding laterality. So if this was an isolated, let's say, right upper extremity gunshot wound, 
well, we want to make sure that we're operating on the right side. And it's usually pretty obvious, but every now and then patients can come on with bilateral wounds and maybe it's the right side that needs exploration and not the left. And so again, laterality and avoiding wrong-sided surgery is important. With the next lap, it's pretty straightforward. Just like you said, Brandon, it's going to be a midline laparotomy uh, to identify the source of bleeding. So you open the abdomen and you essentially find widespread hematoma. What is your sort of approach to this? You don't really know what the injuries are. You don't know what's bleeding. What are you doing when you get in there? Yeah, great question. So when it comes to performing uh, an emergent X-lap in the setting of penetrating trauma, one of the key things that we want to do usually is what we call damage control surgery. Similar to damage control resuscitation, these two kind of are married to provide the best or optimal outcomes for our severely injured patients. And the, the key tenets of a damage control laparotomy, so this is for patients with combined hollow viscous or solid organ injury together with major intra-abdominal vascular injuries, and this has been demonstrated to improve mortality. What we want to do is rapidly identify the source or sources of bleeding and get at least temporary hemorrhage control. Once that's done, we want to make sure that we limit contamination. So if there's any injured colon or small bowel or stomach injuries, we'll want to temporarily get control of those as well. And once that's done and we let our anesthesia colleagues catch up with regards to the resuscitation in a one-to-one-to-one fashion, meaning for every unit of RBCs, there's a unit of FFP and a unit of platelets that's going in, then we're going to want to establish definitive hemorrhage control and then decide at that point, do we bail or do we continue doing what we're doing? And that's going to be based on the presence of improving physiology If things are worsening, let's say from the standpoint of the base deficit or lactate or hemodynamics, then the better part of valor there may be to simply put in a temporary abdominal closure device, get the patient back up to the ICU where we perform stage two of damage control surgery, which is active resuscitation, rewarming, and reversal of the coagulopathy. And once patients are warm, well-perfused, and ready to go back to the OR, that's where we move into stage three of damage control surgery, which essentially involves definitive management and repair of all injuries, vascular as well as enteric, followed by hopefully definitive closure. Okay. So many things can wait, but the the minimum that you will need to get done in this setting will be um, bleeding, solid organs will be packed or cauterized or uh, sewn so that you're not actively bleeding. Bleeding vascular injuries will likewise have some sort of hemostasis. Um, Open bowel injuries will in some way be closed. And generally that might just mean stapling them off, right? Not necessarily creating new stomas or anastomoses. And uh, anything that's not uh, perfused is either reperfused or removed if you don't need it. Is that more or less the, the things that must be done? That's a great summary, actually. In fact, uh, that's exactly what we would do. Um, there is always a little bit of a debate, and I think it depends on how you've been trained. Uh, a lot of people will argue that in the setting of bowel injuries, um, to really try to put those patients back in continuity 
whereas others like myself uh, are happy to keep, you know, um, little islands of bowel stapled off or not really focused on putting them back together, put them in continuity or make a stoma. And proponents of putting patients back together argue that uh, you get a lot of bowel edema, which makes it difficult to close patients. It may result in hypoperfusion of the bowel. And they'll also argue that at the second take back or the first take back, I should say, um, you know, you'll have these or discrepant lumens and that the anastomosis might be a little bit more tenuous. So there are different approaches, but if the patient truly is dying and is physiologically kind of just pushing uh, the envelope, then in those cases, yes, I think it's best just to staple off what you need to staple off, resect, and then come back to fight another day. Okay. And then once you've achieved those minimum things, how much further you would take it will depend, as you said, on sort of how they're doing. Are they still bleeding more kind of quote medical bleeding? Or do they f- kind of metabolically seem to be improving or not? If they seem like they're doing okay, you may do more. If they're not, then you would just leave the abdomen open, and get them out of there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's really important to emphasize here is that it really is up to the surgery and anesthesia team to communicate with one another. And it's not just enough to focus in on the bleeding and stopping the the spillage and limit enteric contamination. It's really the, the surgeon's job. And I think this is important for junior attending surgeons out there to follow up on the base deficit and to ask for these things. And what's the result of the TEG? And is the coagulopathy improving, not just from the standpoint of viscoelastic assays, but like you mentioned, is there now medical bleeding from raw surfaces that irrespective of what we do, we can't stop it? Because that would argue for the presence of an ongoing coagulopathy, and it's probably a better idea just to pack, use hemostatic dressings, and then get out of there. Okay. And if you do leave the abdomen open, generally nowadays, that would mean a a wound vac of some sort. Yeah, yeah. In general, I think we would use some sort of negative pressure wound system. Uh, The popular one out there is the Aptera or wound vac. But you can also use your your own sort of homemade ghetto vac, as we call them, or Barker packs. And those uh, work well as well. So um, things actually go fairly well in the OR. You do surgeon things, you leave the abdomen open. Um, He goes off to the ICU. You may see him later. But For you, um, you get washed up, you grab a cup of coffee, and you're just kind of getting wound down when uh, EMS calls about another patient. (laughs) And this is going to be a 38-year-old male. These men are always getting in trouble. Um, He was a driver in an MVC, um, rollover off of the highway, off of a turn. Uh, He went down an embankment, and the car was found at the bottom. Um, when he was found by EMS, he was unrestrained. Uh, his airbags had not deployed, but the paramedics are kind of laughing because they clearly should have. So they don't know if he didn't have airbags or they weren't working or what. But when they find him, he's, he's groaning, um, awake, um, normotensive. There's an obvious deformity to his left femur. They place an 18-gauge IV. They give him 50 mics of fentanyl. They give him half a liter of normal saline, and they bring him to you. When he arrives in the ER, um, you find that he rouses to voice and he converses with you, but he's a little restless and confused. Uh, his skin is warm. There's a, a hematoma on his forehead. There seems to be a, a, a seatbelt sign on his abdomen, some linear ecchymosis. And his left leg is, is shortened and deformed and very tender. It does have uh, distal pulses. 
His blood pressure is 120 over 70. Um, his heart rate is about 110, which is sinus. And he has a, a somewhat diffusely tender abdomen, but it's soft. Um, what are the things that you want to get done early to help guide your decision-making in a patient like this? Clearly not someone who as obviously needs surgery, but perhaps still could. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think this patient, uh, especially given the mechanism, is at risk for a number of potentially lethal and life-threatening injuries. And so, again, we would have done a huddle prior to the patient's arrival and then immediately jumped into our primary surveys, looking at the A, B, C, D, E. Uh, it sounds like the patient, at least from a verbal standpoint, might be a bit confused. Uh, but assuming that they're opening their eyes and obeying commands, it seems like their GCS isn't too bad at all. And in fact, the very first question I ask a patient is, what's your name? Wiggle your toes. And the reason I ask that is, well, if they can verbalize, you know, their airways patent, you can move on to B. And if they're wiggling their toes, especially following this sort of a mechanism, I at least know for the time being that their spinal cord is intact and that their motor score is six, which is the most important component of the GCS. Uh, following that, again, proceeding through your B, C, D, and E, it sounds like the patient already had an IV placed and got a little bit of salt water. I think at this point, I would limit that. And if there was any concerns for bleeding, I mean, it sounds like a 120 over 70 with a heart rate of 110, not so bad. But if you actually calculate the shock index, it's probably somewhere on the order of 0 0.85, 0 0.9. So I don't think this patient is out of the woods with that initial set of vitals. So we get a second IV and auscultate the lungs, do an E-fast, and then identify any other sources of potential bleeding. So that would include the pelvis as well. And then I think we do need to quickly address the femur fracture because there is the potential to bleed quite a bit into the thigh. And for purposes of pain control, we'd probably end up giving this patient some ketamine, reduce that fracture, and then reassess their neurovascular status in, I believe it was the right lower extremity, once the patient is reduced and call ortho. And by reduced, how do you mean? So essentially, we would give the patient uh, a little bit of vitamin K and then pull on the leg until it was straightened. And then we'll typically place a pneumatic splint at that point just to minimize further movement and then reassess the neurovascular status. How do you feel about traction splints? So we don't usually put them on in the acute inpatient setting or ER setting. If they're going to come in with a traction splint that's put on by the pre-hospital personnel, um, that's fine. And we'll usually leave them in place until we get imaging. But in general, they're a little finicky and we don't place them in the ER. We just usually will reduce fractures and then splint them temporarily until ortho can come and either put a pin in or do whatever they need to do. Okay. So you're performing your assessment and you do an E-fast and it really is only significant for free fluid in the abdomen, which you would describe as a little. A little. A little more than trace, <laughs> but not, not too profound. You, you do see it in both the right and left upper quadrants as well as the, your pelvic views. Okay. Um, but that's about it. So you got another IV, you have his pain reasonably controlled, you have a splint on the leg. Um, now what? Yeah, so I think um, at this point, we've gone through our primary survey. And so before we move on to ordering adjuncts, whether they be labs or x-rays or CTs, I'd want to reassess and reevaluate the patient just to make sure that their hemodynamics remain stable. Provided that they are, then we're definitely going to call for a chest x-ray, 
pelvic x-ray, and we've already done our fast. Once we review those images, at that point, I think we're going to consider triaging the patient to either the CT scanner or something else. So yeah, I'd want to start with the plain films. Okay. Um, your chest x-ray doesn't show much except for um, some faintly increased interstitial markings that they attribute to maybe some contusion. Um, and the pelvis uh, appears to be intact, but it does show, uh, it looks like a mid-shaft femur fracture, which looks rather complex, but you only capture a portion of it on your x-ray. Okay. So with those findings, again, there's still a lot of potential injuries that we're missing. And given the patient's uh, current exam, the, the patient probably needs to get a pan scan from head to at least below the pelvis. Um, and we might get a runoff as well, given the, the complex femur fracture. Another option would simply to do ABIs. And if those were normal, you could forgo a CT angio of that femur fracture. Uh, in my case, I'm kind of lazy, so I'd probably just get a pan scan and include a runoff of bilateral lower extremities. Um, again, I think we've already addressed pain, and so that's important. We'd want to, again, reevaluate the patient's hemodynamics and GCS because, again, radiology and the CT scanner in particular are you know, not good places to be if you've got a potentially sick or unstable patient. So before we go there, we want to make sure that we're rock solid in terms of vitals. And then at that point, we would proceed to further imaging. So he seems to be doing okay. Um, you gave him a little bit of pain control um, and his uh, blood pressure has dipped a little. It's perhaps 100, 110 systolic now, but he otherwise seems the same. So he zips off to CT and... Uh, what it reveals is what looks like about a grade two splenic laceration. Um, there's some sort of nondescript uh, mural thickening of the transverse colon, but it doesn't appear to be perforated. Um, there is a little bit of free fluid in the abdomen. There's the possibility of maybe a subcapsular left renal hematoma, um, but it is a, it's a bit unclear. And there is indeed a, a very complicated looking mid-shaft fracture of the left femur. Um, in the head, there's a there's a rather small-looking subdural hematoma, a little bit of edema, um, maybe a few little punctate lesions that they thought could represent some DAI. But, uh, they suggest an MRI if you're that interested. Uh, and that's more or less all it shows. There seems to be good arterial perfusion to that leg. All right. So pretty classic presentation, polytrauma patient. So starting from the top, I think in the presence of a subdural hematoma or intracranial hemorrhage, uh, this patient's going to get a couple grams of TXA. And we know based on CRASH-3, as well as the more recent Resuscitation Outcomes Consortium trial, that this is probably going to benefit our TBI patients. And so we give two gram boluses right up front. We don't bother with the one gram over 10 minutes and then the one gram over six hours. That second dose tends to get for, it gets forgotten about. So we just give two grams up front. He's going to need seizure prophylaxis in the form of Keppra. And then we'll want to make sure that we're keeping a close eye on those vitals, especially for the prevention of hypoxia and hypotension. And then we're going to get neurosurgery involved, and this patient will probably come up to our ICU for ongoing monitoring. Doesn't sound like there's any indication for an ICP or EVD and get a, a repeat head CT. Um, we usually do it on a fixed schedule, although that's debatable. When it comes to the spleen, so a grade two spleen, 
These can be observed. There's probably no need to do an angio. Now, we do sometimes get concerned in patients who have combined brain as well as solid organ injuries and the concern being, well, if you treat it non-operatively, what if they bleed and then they become hypoxic and hypotensive? And those are the things we're trying to avoid. But I think it's been clearly established that with these mild uh, solid organ injuries, they can be managed conservatively. Now, if there was a large blush, I might consider calling our IR folks to see if it's worthwhile to shoot an angio. But in this particular setting from the description, it sounds like that can be managed non-operatively. The more concerning thing is the thickening of the transverse colon, especially if the patient had an abdominal seatbelt sign. Um, I would say the one thing here that's important to bear in mind, folks, is that if someone has free fluid in the abdomen following blunt trauma with no evidence of a solid organ injury, specifically liver or spleen, then you definitely have to be very concerned for blunt bowel and or mesenteric injury because they shouldn't have free fluid just lying around. That usually suggests either bowel has been perforated or the mesentery has been torn. In this particular case, though, there is a solid organ injury. So I think the diagnosis of BBMI goes down, but not completely. So we'll have to do serial clinical exams, trend the white blood cell count. If it's not an open femur fracture, we should be avoiding antibiotics and then assess the patient's response. If at any point the abdominal exam gets concerning, they're manifesting signs of sepsis, then I think I'd probably put a camera in, do a diagnostic laparoscopy to run the bowel, and then particularly to look at that potentially injured segment of transverse colon uh, to make sure that we're not missing anything. The problem with CT scan is despite the incredible resolution in scanners these days, the sensitivity and specificity for bowel injury are still really low. And then for the femur fracture, uh, again, in the absence of a major vascular injury there, I think getting that reduced is uh, critical and then get our orthopods involved. So he goes off to the ICU both for frequent neurologic exams, but also you mentioned sort of watching the abdomen. Now, the surgical resident is typing in orders and it's a serial abdominal exam. And then the intern says, what's that, what's that mean? Like, who's doing this <laughs> and how question. often? <laughs> Right, right. And you know, it, it's a really good point. And I think especially when we think about our last case where you've got a patient with an abdominal gunshot wound, again, those don't all need to be operated on. We know that non-operative management of uh, gunshot wounds to the abdomen is a well-accepted practice. It's usually done in the setting of a high-volume trauma center. And I think the question about serial abdominal exams is really important. So if you're going to do non-operative management, whether it's blunt or, or penetrating, ideally the person performing those serial exams is the same person. And so these are typically done every three to four hours. You want to lay hands on the patient's abdomen. Hopefully it's the same person doing that exam for at least 12 or 24 hours. And you're looking for worsening tenderness. And you're also marrying that physical exam to lab investigations as well, as well as patient or injured victim symptomatology. So are they having worsening pain? Is their pain out of proportion? And then looking at things like markers of infection, so the white blood cell count may be going up, or even worse, them going leukopenic, uh, looking at signs of end organ perfusion, and then potentially trending lactates or base deficits. And those can be venous. They don't need to be arterial. Yeah. So, you, I mean, you mentioned trending labs. What, what would you trend and, and how often? Yeah. So for us, we would trend the CBC 
I think that's probably the most important thing. You know, many patients coming in following trauma are going to have a, a leukocytosis. And so hopefully over the course of 12 to 24 hours, that normalizes. But certainly in someone in whom you're suspicious for a blunt bowel or mesenteric injury, if that white count is going up, they're becoming more tachycardic, they're manifesting signs of sepsis. Uh, these are patients in whom might have a super low threshold to take to the operating room. All right. Um, so the patient goes upstairs and after some further shenanigans, which, uh, bear no <laughs> note, you manage to make it through your shift. And, uh, a couple days later, you're not on call in the ER anymore, but you're rounding on your own patients and you go and see your first patient again, your gunshot MVC. And what has actually happened in the interim is he did pretty well and, you were actually able to close his abdomen on post-op day two. Right. He was kept intubated subsequent to that for a little bit of hypoxia, a little bit of mental status issues, just generally not kind of looking ready. So he's still on the vent. And then by day kind of three or four post-op, um, you know, he had an initial white count of around 16, which everyone attributed to just stress, and it, it fell to around 14, but it's been back up in the maybe 15s the past couple days, kind of mm-hmm. hovering there. He's now, in the past two days, spiked a fever twice into the 38 range. They drew some cultures, which are all still cooking. Um, there's no real clear sources of infection in, in the lungs, for instance. So the ICU team is is kind of worrying about your abdomen. I suppose his abdomen, but you have a a vested interest in it. Um, (laughs) They placed him on some antibiotics, uh, piperacillin, tazobactam. They just ran him through the CT on their own wherewithal without any contrast. Um, It's sort of hard to read. The whole abdomen just looks like a big gray thing. Uh, They're not sure what to make of it. Um, So they're talking to your team and they're saying, I don't know, do you want to go take a look back in here? I mean, you think there could be an abscess or something? Um, abdomen scare us. What, what do you want to do? Yeah, great. And this is a pretty common scenario in someone who's undergone a trauma X lap. And I think one of the things that is concerning right off the bat is there seems to be some underlying respiratory or pulmonary problem. And I think one of the things that I would really impress upon folks is that oftentimes the lungs mirror what's happening on the other side of the diaphragm. Now, this patient is definitely at risk for aspiration, pulmonary, you know, contusion maybe. I don't know if we saw that originally, but certainly anytime a trauma patient comes in and gets emergently intubated, they're at risk for aspiration. It's still pretty early in the patient's course. So, you know, VAP, unlikely. And so anytime I see a patient with worsening pulmonary problems, I always get concerned about the abdomen. So I think it would have been great if the ICU team had communicated with the surgery team about their concerns, because we certainly would not have recommended getting a scan without contrast, because as you know, that's pretty useless test. And so if we were still concerned and the patient wasn't obviously crashing, we'd probably ask for a, a repeat CT scan with IV contrast, irrespective of what the creatinine or GFR is. If it's elevated, we could hydrate them up. But uh, that's probably the the right place to start. But even before that, we'd want to do a good, close physical exam to make sure we're not missing anything. And that's from head to toe. We'll definitely want to pay close attention to our incisions, as well if there were any drains left. We'd want to look at the sort of 
characteristics, quality, and quantity to make sure there's not, for example, bile or chyle or, or other effluent uh, in those drains that might suggest a, a missed injury. And then a lot of it is also going to depend on what exactly was injured. So stomach injury, those usually repair really well. If the gunshot wound or bullet went through the pancreas, well, that's oftentimes a problem and can lead to prolonged problems. And so, yeah, physical exam, review all the labs, and certainly here it still sounds like there's something concerning going on, and then a CT scan to delineate the anatomy. Okay. You take a look at the patient, and um, you're not able to get a whole lot from him. The abdomen looks sort of unremarkable, but, you know, it was just post-surgical. Um, there's a couple JP drains you left in there, and they're not really putting much out. So you send them through CT, and with contrast now, radiology thinks they see a, a couple small pockets of fluid in kind of the, the pelvis and retroperitoneal area. Um, they're not able to really say definitively if this looks like definite abscess or what, but there's something there. So now what? Yeah, I think the one thing I didn't mention is I would also talk to the patient's bedside nurse and see if he or she had any concerns or if the patient looked worse to them. But with those findings, and it's now injury day three or four, hospital day three or four, they're probably not going to be mature enough or walled off to be able to place a percutaneous drain successfully. And then a lot of it may also depend on the size. So if there's small kind of pelvic retroperitoneal fluid collections, um, still too early to put in a drain. And so I would continue supporting with antibiotics. And it sounds like Piptazo is the reasonable antibiotic of choice here. Uh, probably too early and doesn't seem to have risk factors for MRSA. So we can forgo the Vanco. And I, I can't imagine that this young male patient would require any sort of antifungal therapy either. So I think right now we're going to hang tight, continue with antibiotic therapy, follow up on the results of our cultures, and then make sure we're not missing anything else anywhere else. But it doesn't seem like we are. So one of uh, one of your surgical interns says, "Okay, so we'll you know we'll we'll watch and wait, but you know there there's something in there, there's some kind of fluid. Like, what is it? I mean, if it's an abscess, all right, we're going to watch it and wait. It, but is that what it is, or could there be something else that's benign? Or I mean, you're not supposed to have fluid in your abdomen." <laughs> Right, right. Well, you know, in fact, following most X-lapse, uh, the issue is we don't do a lot of early repeat scanning. Uh, and when we do, oftentimes we will see fluid within the peritoneal cavity. And that may be leftover irrigation. That may be some blood that's collected. And so given this patient's presentation and current clinical status with those findings, there's really not a heck of a lot to do. But again, your index of suspicion may be raised depending on what exact injuries uh, were identified and dealt with. Okay. So that's the plan you set out. Um, and then the weekend rolls along and you're off the service, someone else is covering. And when you come back on Monday, what you learn is that the patient kind of continued to look much the same. Mm. And they... Uh, maybe looks a little bit worse as far as their clinical exam. They end up scanning them again several days later, and maybe those collections are still there or more prominent. So they eventually speak with IR, and IR puts a couple of percutaneous drains into these pockets. Um, they got eh, about 100 cc's of drainage initially from them. It looked a little bit purulent. So after that, and by the time you find the patient again, um, he's 
doesn't look any worse. I don't know that he looks a great deal better either. He's still putting about 100 cc's a day in total from these drains. It's sort of serosanguinous, but probably still a little bit purulent. Um, and again, there's still kind of a hovering white count. He's had one more fever in the past couple days. Now what? <laughs> so, um, good question. Again, if this patient did have enteral injuries and there was concern for an anastomotic leak or breakdown, these are patients in whom we might consider, you know, sticking some enteral contrast or oral contrast down their NG tube and scanning. The problem here, though, again, is the sensitivity is low, but it's a pretty specific test. So if you see a leak rate, but more often than not, you're not going to see that. I think based on the description, it certainly doesn't sound like this is enteric content to the point where we're concerned that they're leaking succus uh, into their abdomen. So again, yeah, I think you got to be kind of patient and, and hang tight. Um, certainly we're at a week out and so there's still some time if we needed to get back in that we can safely without running into like a concrete matted down sort of bowel or frozen abdomen. So we still got a bit of time. I, again, probably would not rush back into this patient's abdomen at this point. So the, yeah, one of your residents who's been sharpening his scalpel is saying, so I, 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 I see your points that there may be benefit to waiting, but it, it kind of seems like it, you know, there could be some utility to opening it back up again. What are the downsides to operating? So downsides to reoperation in a patient like this, I mean, there's a few downsides, to be honest with you. I think um, there's always the potential for further harm uh, to bowel or surrounding structures. But at this point, being about a week out, we're still not in that period where we kind of just shake our heads and think, oh my gosh, this is like the worst time to go back in. And that's usually starting at around two weeks. You're talking about adhesions. Adhesions, yeah. The the bowel starts to kind of get uh, just kind of matted down. And so the risk for enterotomy becomes quite high. Um, fortunately, it sounds like this patient was closed at their first take back. And so that's always a good thing. But yeah, I think um, there are a few downsides. Again, there's the risk of anesthesia, of transport. I think the big question as surgeons that we want to ask ourselves is, you know, what's the sort of risk benefit ratio of a reoperation? And in a patient whose white count is kind of hovering in the mid-teens without evidence of end organ dysfunction, yeah, they, they're still on the ventilator. Um, but um, you know, they're not on vasopressors, they're not in a worsening septic shock-like state. I think oftentimes it's best just to to hang tight. And the fact is the patient does have a couple of drains in and they seem to be draining something. Again, we would have cultured that fluid to help guide and narrow down our antibiotic therapy. But uh, I don't imagine you're going to find much if you were to take this patient back to the operating room right now. And I know it's a tough one because uh, so often we get these patients with these intra-abdominal disasters and, you know, the ICU team have ruled out the, the line sepsis, they've ruled out any infected decubitus ulcers and the pneumonias and, and all the other stuff. And you're kind of just left with the abdomen, which is, as you mentioned earlier, sort of a bit of this black box. But um, yeah, I think in this particular case, I can't imagine that... Uh, taking the patient to the operating room is going to result in a better outcome than just those drains and antibiotics alone. Yeah. So it sounds like your kind of thought process for these sorts of patients is, you know, 
the risks of reoperating may or may not be profound. Certainly, the more time passes, they seem to be greater. Yes. But if there's no suspicion for really a specifically surgical problem, like a, a, a leak from the bowel or something, they're, they're, you just don't usually find anything to do in there. I mean, you could wash it out if there's some goo or something, but right. that, you don't really need surgery for that. Right. Absolutely. Completely. All right. So this patient kind of sails off into the sunset and hopefully does well. <laughs> and and I, I think that may, may terminate your, 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 uh, your campaign in this particular uh, schedule. Um, Brian, is anything else you want to touch on today? Hey, this has been great. Um, you know, as providers in the ICU, like Brandon said earlier, we are sort of uh, often in the dark as to what happens in the operating room. Um, I remember I used to work with a surgeon several years ago who never really trusted the ICU team. Mm. And he would always say, well, that's fine. That's fine. But you know, they weren't in the operating room. I was in the operating room. So as a surgeon, what would you say to those of us who are in the ICU? What's, what's the important stuff for us to understand about the intraoperative course to sort of counter that you weren't in the operating room argument? Yeah, I mean, number one, I don't know that that's a valid uh, statement or observation. And I would hope that the operative dictation and notes would have been succinct and descriptive enough that anyone who's involved in the healthcare field would be able to understand the anatomy, what was removed, how they were reconstructed, uh, and what sort of complications our particular patients are at risk for. And, um, you know, I think in the ICU as providers or healthcare professionals, it, it really involves a multidisciplinary approach. And so whether it's neurosurgery, internal medicine, rheumatology, renal, um, you know, we should all be able to communicate with one another and trust one another. And it's okay to disagree. I think having healthy arguments and debates are great and usually result in, in better patient care. And it should be done in a nice, respectful way. I think, um, you know, I, as a surgeon, have experienced the exact same thing that you guys have. And, um, you know, sometimes when I'm wearing my ICU hat and I'm not uh, in the OR and I'm not doing trauma, but I'm purely dedicated to the ICU, we have patients come through who have these sort of disasters in their abdomen. And I've had a, a recent patient, for example, who uh, began to just pour out tons of bile out of a couple of drains and she had undergone a large liver resection with big reconstruction and, uh, you know, trying to convince the surgeon that, hey, you know, she's septic, she's got a lot of abdominal tenderness, there's a ton of bile coming out. Uh, I think you need to take this patient back to the operating room to revisit the reconstruction and then to wash her out and maybe even leave her open to get all those negative humors out of there. And so we got the scan and there was a couple of dots of air around the biliary enteric anastomosis, but the surgeon, you know, was absolutely convinced that uh, he or she didn't need to go back to the operating room. And lo and behold, the patient got worse and worse and, you know, to the point where eventually given her age and comorbidities and um, pre-illness uh, state of health, we ended up moving towards compassionate extubation and comfort care. And I was so frustrated about that because it was so difficult to convince this person that, yes, this patient would benefit from a washout. And so, um, yeah, it, it's, it's a tough thing. And uh, I think certain surgeons are, uh, will have a, a lower um, threshold 
to take patients back to the operating room and to the point where sometimes, you know, you meet surgeons of, of all differing types of um, personalities and some are a little way too aggressive, others are way too conservative. And so it's trying to find that happy medium, which I think comes from a combination of experience, um, unfortunately, bad outcomes that you learn from, but it's so important to incorporate that into your armamentarium so that as you move forward, you're able to, to make these decisions, uh, hopefully, in a multidisciplinary fashion. And, and one group of people we haven't included in all this is the family and the loved ones of the patients. So when I'm in this sort of dilemma that Brandon was taking us through where you think there could be something in the abdomen, but you're not sure, and maybe surgery is the right answer, I'll oftentimes put that all out on the table uh, with the patient, provided that they're able to interact with us as well as their loved ones and, and talk about the risks and benefits. And I don't usually leave it to them to make the decision. I usually will offer an opinion. Um, and then talk about some of the potential benefits of doing something invasive, like going back to the OR. Well, that's good. I, I like that you said you offer an opinion too, because I think so many times I've seen family members even explicitly ask, what should I do? And I think sometimes we're so afraid of this medical paternalism that we say, well, that's not for me to decide. You, only you can decide what we should do. Um, when I think a lot of times folks really just kind of want some some more direct guidance. So. Oh, absolutely. I, I completely concur with that. Um, I think autonomy is so important and we need to allow patients to make their own decisions, uh, informed decisions with all the information and data at hand. But I agree. I mean, uh, there's a reason we do our degrees and there's a, a reason why we train in the environments that we do and have the conversations that we have and develop the expertise and professionalism to be able to help guide loved ones through what are going to be some of the toughest decisions they'll ever have to make. And it's just not fair. And so I yeah. agree. I mean, you know, call it paternalism or medical paternalism or maternalism. I think it really comes down to um, offering insights as well as experience and wisdom that, uh, you know, the non-medical person may not have. So it's so important for us to do that. And I just think it's so unfair, you know, when uh, patients, for example, near the end of life, you know, asking family members, like, what do you want to do? I mean, what do you think they want? They want their loved one to get better. But right. the fact of the matter is many times they're not. Right. And so what can we do to help them accept that? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, this is the time and things aren't going to get better and that maybe we need to be more compassionate and move towards a comfort care versus ongoing active resuscitation and therapies, which we know will be futile. Um, yeah. So I think, yeah, like you said, communication is just so important all, all around uh, between the teams and among the families as well. Uh, one other thing I wanted to ask you about real quick, just sort of as an afterwards to this, is you mentioned the sh term shock index a couple of times um, through the cases. And I, this is something that I've used for a long time, but I find that when I mention it to other folks, it's very hit or miss if they have any idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> for So for listeners out there who may not be familiar with the shock index, can you just sort of real briefly summarize what is it and how... Are you using it uh, to sort of make decisions? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, whenever we think about patients in shock, there's a whole number of different symptoms, signs, and physical exam findings we use to define it. So, for example, starting with the vital signs, you know, are they tachycardic? Are they hypotensive? And these sorts of things help guide our estimated blood loss calculations in patients coming in following injury. Uh, tachypnea, hypoxia, these are all things that can be used together with fine findings on physical exam. Are they cool, clammy, and shut down? Do they have poor cap refill? And then what's their mental status? Are they making urine? And then what's their base deficit? When you take a, a single vital sign, I think in isolation, like a heart rate, or just the systolic blood pressure. I mean, so many things can cause tachycardia. It doesn't necessarily mean our patients are bleeding. But the shock index essentially is the ratio of your heart rate over your systolic blood pressure. And so if your heart rate is up, your shock index goes up. Inversely, if your SBP is low, your shock index goes up. And so it's really just the ratio of heart rate over SBP. And the the cutoff or the values differ across studies. I would say that a shock index greater than or equal to 0.8 or 1 probably is indicative of someone or a patient who may benefit from active resuscitation or a hemorrhage control intervention. So we use this in the pre-hospital setting uh, to help triage patients. And then we also use it in the ER And for me, a shock index greater than 0.8 or 1, for example, is usually a good indication to consider at least transfusing the patient or potentially even activating the MTP. We did a study a couple years ago looking at a narrowed pulse pressure defined as a pulse pressure less than 30. And if you consider 120 over 80 being a quote unquote normal blood pressure, that's a pulse pressure of 40. And I'm sure you guys have seen this as well. Patient comes in, gunshot wound to the chest or abdomen. They cycle the blood pressure and it's 150 over 130. And someone says, oh, wow, that patient's stable. Look at how good the blood pressure is. When in fact, you know with that narrow pulse pressure, the diastolic is elevated because they've got this severe systemic vascular vasoconstriction because they've lost their blood volume. They're trying to compensate. And so often the very next blood pressure is like 70 over 40. And so we looked at a a group of penetrating patients. We looked at their pulse pressure. We looked at their shock index. And in fact, both of them were very predictive of the need for a transfusion or some sort of hemorrhage control intervention. And this has also been looked at in the pre-hospital setting. There's large pre-hospital databases that have looked at shock index and have used it as a triage tool for patients who require some sort of intervention, whether that be transfusion or surgery. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good way to quickly sort of assess things too. Um, like you said, it's it's pretty easy math. Uh, right, it's not as exactly. complicated as some of the scores out there. Totally. Um, well, thanks so much. This has been really great. Uh, I think it's really always insightful to have surgeons, especially, sort of explain their thought process um, to those of us who aren't surgeons. So thanks for coming on. Oh, and, of course, um, thank you, Brian. Thank you, Brandon. It's been a pleasure. I love your show. Um, oh, thanks. As we talked about before all this, I think you guys are doing a great job. Uh, I love the case scenarios. I can only imagine as someone who also, you know, makes and produces podcasts, how much time it takes to develop these scenarios. But I think it's such a great educational format. And I really appreciate being on your show and look forward to having you guys on my show sometime in the near future. 
It would be our pleasure. Awesome. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. All right, everybody, that does it for another episode of Critical Care Scenarios. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time.